Jesus' very last act on earth is also one of his most puzzling. He ascends into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father. On the surface, the ascension appears to show Christ leaving our world. But if we see the ascension resulting in less of Jesus' presence instead of more, then we are missing out on a powerful truth about the ascended Jesus. When Jesus encounters Mary Magdalene after his resurrection, she throws her arms around him. She had lost him once, and she would never lose him again. But Jesus says to her, Don't hold on to me, Mary, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. One could assume that Jesus is saying this because his resurrected body is sacred. But later Jesus invites Thomas to touch his wounds, so that can't be the case. Jesus knew the fear that Mary felt, thinking she had lost him forever. So through his reply, Jesus is saying, If you let go, if you let me ascend, you'll have access to an even stronger relationship with me. Mary, the way I am right now, there's a chance you could lose me. But if I ascend to the Father, you will have me forever and nothing will ever be able to take me away from you. His presence would come through the Holy Spirit, who is not merely a force, but a person who would come in his place. Jesus said, unless I go away, the Advocate will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. And one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to reveal Christ to us. This is why Jesus said that through the Holy Spirit, he would finally show himself to his disciples. The implication is that the disciples did not and could not truly know Jesus until he went away bodily and returned through the Holy Spirit, which is encouraging for us to see because you might be under the impression that if only you could have lived and walked with Jesus, that you would know him better than you do now. But you'd be wrong. Before Jesus died, the Holy Spirit had not been released into the world in this powerful way. And you can only know Jesus fully through the Spirit's influence, as he shows you in the shadow of the cross how high and long and wide and deep his love is for us. In other words, through the Holy Spirit, you can see Christ and know his presence and his love better than the apostles on the night of the Lord's Supper. So the inevitable question is, are you living like this is true? Are you living like Christ is more accessible now than he was when he walked the earth? Jesus has made his intentions clear. He left heaven and all of his glory for your sake. And through his ascension, he has made himself infinitely available to you. Christ has drawn near to you. So draw near to him. The power of the Holy Spirit. I love what that video says, and uh, it's so true. The power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus said, you know, before he died, before he rose, before he ascended, said, I'm sending another one, a comforter a helper, someone to guide you into all truth, the Holy Spirit. 
And I think one thing that uh, many times we as Christians sometimes overlook or perhaps uh, think wrongly about is we get this idea that the Holy Spirit showed up in the New Testament, that He didn't exist before that. He was kind of a new concept or a new idea that Jesus talked about. No, the Holy Spirit really showed up in a new way, is what that video says, what the Bible tells us. In fact, the Holy Spirit has surprisingly been at work since the beginning of time. Think about this. The Holy Spirit moved throughout creation, creating order and preventing chaos. We see this in the book of Genesis. The Holy Spirit engraved the Ten Commandments in stone when Moses was on Mount Sinai. The Holy Spirit granted Samson the strength he needed to defeat his foes. The Holy Spirit spoke through visions and dreams to various people throughout the Bible. The Holy Spirit spoke through Old Testament prophets of the coming Messiah. In fact, when the Messiah showed up, well, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove the very moment that Christ came up out of the waters of baptism. And the Holy Spirit moved like wind as He rested like tongues of fire over the heads of those who were there on Pentecost. The Holy Spirit struck Ananias and Sapphira dead for lying to him in Peter's presence. Powerful. And the Holy Spirit, think about this, filled the life of a Pharisee and murderer the very moment he turned his life over to Jesus Christ. And his name was Saul. Later he was known as the Apostle Paul. In fact, his very conversion was a twist he never saw coming, let alone anyone else. In fact, Paul, he had been about the business of hunting down Christians so they could be imprisoned, so that they could be killed. And now this very Paul, what happens to him? as he becomes a convert to Christianity because he responds to the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. In fact, the Holy Spirit moves, friends, in surprising ways in order to bring something that's greatly needed in each one of our lives as well. It's called transformation. We all need to be transformed. And that's why in surprising ways the Holy Spirit transforms a life. He transforms a marriage. He transforms a family. He transforms a community. And what's interesting, I think, is that whenever the Holy Spirit transforms someone, it usually comes as a complete surprise to that person. Mostly, I think, because they never expected God to move at all, or perhaps because they never expected Him to move in the ways that He did. And this was the case for the Apostle Paul, who after his conversion, he he was taught, and then he wanted to go out and he wanted to do great things for God. In fact, he he was following the prompting of the Holy Spirit, and he was going to go out and plant churches. And he did that. In fact, of all the churches he eventually planted, the one that was dearest to his heart was the church in Philippi. He upheld this church really as the model for all other churches to replicate. Without question, the Holy Spirit worked in surprising ways in order to transform lives so the church in Philippi could be transformed and serve as the model we're going to take a look at starting next week. See, friends, it's through our study of this transformed community, this transformed church, that we too will be transformed individually and collectively as a church body. And so before we dive into Philippians, which starts next week, I think it's really important for us to understand who it is that Paul was writing to. When we open up the book of Philippians, he's writing to people who, who make up this church. Who are those people? And how did this church come to be? Well, to answer those questions, we have to open up our Bibles, our iPads, our iPhones to Acts chapter 16. Please turn there with me. To Acts chapter 16. And there's four lessons we're going to learn from this encounter that Luke writes about. 
See, Dr. Luke, he's traveling with Paul, and he is writing down everything that he sees. And the first lesson we'll take a look at, starting at verse 6 of Acts chapter 16, is that the Spirit ensures transformation through a surprising communication. Through a surprising communication. See, again, again, Paul, he knew the Holy Spirit was prompting him. He knew he was supposed to go out and plant churches, and yet, exactly where, he wasn't sure. Because although he was following the prompting of the Holy Spirit, his voice, the Holy Spirit's voice, wasn't as clear to him as perhaps would have been helpful to him in the moment. And I think we can all relate. Because if you're honest, you probably had a time as a Christian in your life where you were prompted to help someone. Maybe to give them $5 or to say something to them or to do something for them. And you feel prompted to do that. And then you kind of step back because, you know, you're not exactly sure that you're hearing that voice as clearly as you might want. For you, for me, perhaps, the sound of the Holy Spirit's voice can sound much like this. If you have any it can seem like that sometimes, and if it seems like that for you, you're listening, you're trying, but you can't quite make out what he's saying. Well, you're not alone because the Apostle Paul felt like that. And so he didn't wait. He launched. He just started walking. Without a clear mandate, he just knew he was going to plant churches somewhere, and he figured that the Spirit would kind of stop him or direct him along the way, hopefully. And so this is where we pick up. Verse 6 of Acts chapter 16, Luke writes, and he tells us that Paul and his companions, and Luke was one of them, traveled throughout the region of Frisia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And there's a lot going on there. And I want you to picture Paul here. He's kind of like in a pinball machine, right? I mean, he's going every which way. He's trying to figure out where he's supposed to go. He can't quite make it out. And so he ends up starting one place, going to another, and then another, and then finally another. Then he finally understands where it is he's supposed to go, which is a completely different travel altogether. Take a look at this map. He starts in the south, in Frisia here. And later on in Paul's ministry, he would plant churches there. You know, in Ephesus, for example, and in other places that were popular, Philadelphia, Laodicea. But that was later. This was now. And the Spirit saying, not right now. And so he traveled all the way north here up to Mesia. And then he tried to enter Bithynia, Luke tells us. But then the Spirit said, no, you're not to do that. So then he took a left and went on down to Troas. I mean, he's just going all over the place. And I want you to think about this. This is not Paul. Keep in mind, he's traveling by foot. He's walking all of this. This is not like you, you know, traveling from Loveland to Mason, and then from Mason to South Lebanon, and then going, oh, I'm not supposed to go there. I'm supposed to go back over to, to Loveland. No, it's not like that. I want you to think about you traveling by foot. You start here, because you're not sure where you're supposed to go, and you walk all the way to Dayton, Ohio. And then you realize, oh, not supposed to go there. So you try walking over to Columbus and you get all the way there. Nope, you're not supposed to walk there. And then you end up coming all the way back here to Cincinnati and walking all that way. And then add to that mountain ranges. 
you're walking over mountains or around mountains, which is making your travel even longer. And this is what Paul does. And then he receives this unusual communication, this vision that says, okay, by the way, you're supposed to come over to Macedonia. Well, that doesn't make it any clearer. Take a look at Macedonia here. It's a huge region, right? And so now, okay, I'm supposed to go over there, but boy, you could spend your lifetime trying to find the right spot. And he ends up, and we'll read about this in just a moment, landing here in Philippi. It's a, it's a waterfront little, little village at that point. A beautiful spot. And this is where this new church would be planted. We learn about this as Paul enters now uncharted territory. And I say that for a good reason. We'll, we'll see this in just a moment. Take a look at verse 10. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there for several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Why? Why did they expect to find a place of prayer? And what was a place of prayer? Well, first of all, he's referring to a synagogue. They expected to go there and find a synagogue because this is what Paul always did. Whenever he went into a new region to preach the gospel, he went to the local synagogue, first of all, because he was a Jew, but secondly, because he was the student of the famous rabbi known as Gamaliel. And anyone who was taught by him, you would want to hear as a good Jew. And so you would flood to hear him speak. And he always began speaking in synagogues, and yet they can't find one there. And it's a clue to them as it is a clue to us that this is a Gentile region. There aren't many Jewish people there, if any. The reality is it only took 10 Jewish families to form a synagogue, just 10. And so this shows this is a Gentile region who's never heard of the gospel before. He enters now into uncharted territory, and it is here where this church would be planted, in Philippi. And who would its founding member be? Well, not who you would expect if you're living in that culture. The Holy Spirit first moves through this surprising communication, and now... He ensures transformation through a surprising entrepreneur. A surprising entrepreneur. Remember, Paul goes down to the river, and Luke picks it up here in verse 13. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. Now, Lydia from Thyatira. Now, Thyatira was a thriving manufacturing city at that particular time, known for producing one thing. Purple cloth. Purple cloth. I mean, even in our day and age, purple and red are both known as kind of colors of royalty. It was the same back then. Purple was a royal color. But this cloth that they made in Thyatira, it was more than just purple. It was highly sought after. In fact, the material made, this purple material made in Thyatira was weighted with gold in terms of its value. This was expensive stuff. And so I want you to think about Lydia. They encounter her by the river. She's kind of like a walking advertisement. You've seen these, these trucks walking, you know, driving down the highway with these billboards on both sides trying to advertise certain things. I don't think that actually works, but people spend their money trying to do that. Well, she was a walking advertisement for what she was trying to sell, this purple cloth. It also signifies that she is really well off. She's, she's pretty rich. And so now she's trying to sell this material. She is an influential woman. But also, according to Christ, 
Lydia would be the most difficult person to try to reach with the gospel. Jesus said this. He said, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. See, most people who are doing really well, who've never responded to God before, never responded to Christ, and they're rich, they don't feel like they need anything. They don't need anyone. They can buy whatever they need, whoever they think they want. And that's why he's saying, you know what, anyone like Lydia, who's wealthy like Lydia, who's not responded yet, it'd be, it's very difficult for them. For them, they would feel like this, is what Jesus is saying. Kind of getting stuck as you're trying to work through that needle. Now, the rich men down below are just solving the problem, saying, well, let's just buy a bigger needle. Um, but the reality is, Jesus is trying to make a point here. He's saying most people will not do this. They cannot do this. It's so hard for them to leave their self-sufficiency behind and embrace Him. But this is not how Lydia responded. She responded in surprising ways for such a successful person. Again, let's go back to verse 13. Luke writes, We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening, first clue, was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira who was a worshiper of God, second clue. Third clue, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So three lessons from Lydia. First of all, she was listening. She was listening. See, many people hear the gospel presentation, but they don't truly take it in. They don't listen to what's really being said. As a result, they don't respond. In fact, people who hear but fail to listen are a fulfillment of prophecy, according to Jesus Christ, who said this, You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But this is not how Lydia responded. You see, God had been about the business of calling her and drawing her to himself for a very, very long time. And as a result... Her heart was not calloused. Her eyes were not shut. Her ears were not closed. She was listening. Are you? Are you listening to what God is trying to say to you? Or does His voice sound like that voice you heard earlier, just muddled and chaotic because your life is so busy and so full, you really can't hear Him clearly? Are you listening? She was. Luke also says that she was a worshiper of God. Now, many people worship God, right? We think, well, that's not such a big deal. I mean, a lot of people say they believe in God. I want you to think about this now. She lived in this Gentile region where they worshipped a plethora of different gods, and sometimes so many different gods you couldn't even count them. And in the face of all this, she sets all these gods aside to focus on the one true God, and it shows that she had a seeking heart. But it doesn't show necessarily that she's a follower of Christ yet. And this is the mistake that a lot of people make, even in our culture today. There are a lot of Lydia's, I believe, in your life. People who are very successful. People would say they believe in God. But just because you believe in God does not make you a Christian. A lot of people believe that. They say, well, I believe in God. I'm a Christian. Well, no, believing in God can make you a Muslim. It can make you a Jew. 
It can make you just a really nice person who believes in God, but it does not make you a follower of Jesus Christ. You need the third component that Luke writes about, a softened heart. That God would be working in your heart to soften your heart, to respond. Lydia had a softened heart. In fact, Jesus said this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him or softens their heart, and I will raise him up at the last day. And so as a result of the Lord softening her heart, several important events occurred in her life. First of all, she came to saving faith. Her entire household turned to Jesus. She invited Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke into her home, and it was there that the church in Philippi had been planted with this female entrepreneur named Lydia. So let me ask you, who's a Lydia in your life? Who do you know? They're successful. A lot of things going well for them. And yet, they would just say, I believe in God. But they haven't crossed the line of faith. Who's the Lydia in your life? And right now, I just want us to stop and just reflect and pray. And I want you to think about that Lydia in your life. And for 20 seconds or so, I just want you to close your eyes and pray. And pray that God would call them and draw them to himself. Just as he did with Lydia. Let's stop and let's just pray right now for the Lydia in our lives. Dear Father, you made us. You love us. And Lord, for every person who's here today that has already responded in saving faith, God, we give you thanks. Right now we pray for these Lydias. I pray for mine. I pray, Lord, that you would soften her heart. She's reading the Bible. She's even attending church a couple times now. But Lord, she's not yet turned her life over to you. Soften her heart. Call her. Draw her to yourself. And Lord, for each person that's here and for each Lydia that's represented Lord, do the same. Do what only you can do. Lord, we care for these people. We love them. We know you do as well. And Lord, we also pray that you'd use us in the process. That each one of these Lydias that we're praying for right here in this place would come to know the beauty of who you are. Experience your grace and your love and your peace. We pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen. Now, as we think about this event, I think it's important for us to understand something regarding culture. Remember, Paul's planning this church. He's trying to make sure that other people will know about this church that gets planted, which means he's going to go back to the Jewish people he came from and tell these stories. I mean, the letters he'll write eventually to Philippi will be read by people, Gentiles and Jews alike. And here's a problem from a human perspective if you're going to plant a church back then with a female entrepreneur was that for the Jewish people, it was a male-dominated society. Women did not rule the day by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, an unmarried woman was not allowed to leave her home without her father's permission. And a married woman, she couldn't leave her home without her husband's permission. In fact, women in general really had no roles of, of title or authority. In fact, if a woman back then, a Jewish woman, actually witnessed right in front of her a murder take place, she could not even testify in court about it because her testimony would not be considered valid. I mean, that's the culture 
that Paul lived in. A woman could not appear in public venues. She could not talk to strangers. And so when you put this all together, I mean, if Paul had wanted to give credibility to the gospel, if he had wanted to give credibility to this church that he was planting, the last person in the world he would have wanted to start it with would be a woman. And it shows that the Holy Spirit, friends, He is not limited to our box. He is not limited to our ways of thinking. He supersedes all of those things. And because a woman started this church, look at this letter that Paul wrote. And we're going to look at it over the weeks to come. And millions of lives have been changed because of this woman who started this church in Philippi. It's astounding. The Holy Spirit moves in surprising ways. So what did He do next? The Spirit ensured transformation through a surprising messenger. A surprising messenger. Take a look at verse 16. Luke writes, Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. Let's reframe the thing. Remember now, Paul had just gone down to the river to pray, where he had met Lydia before. He encounters this girl who in the Greek had a python spirit, a python. Brings us all the way back to Genesis. Think think about snakes and deception. What he's saying, as as this is written, is is she's demon-possessed. And on top of that, though, because of this gift this demon had given her, she could tell the future. Now, back then, what that meant, if if you were her slave owner, and that's how it worked back then, it meant that you were making just a whole lot of money. I mean, a lot of cash from her. This is how it worked. In fact, one historian writes, he said, No commander which set out on a major military campaign, nor would an emperor make an important decree without first consulting an oracle to see how things might turn out. A slave girl with a clairvoyant gift was thus a veritable gold mine for her owners. So she's making them all this money. And so the moment that she can no longer do this is the moment they stop making all of their cash. And so this is how it worked. Now, Paul is annoyed by this girl. Even though she's shouting to everyone the truth that Paul is trying to tell them the way of of God, Paul doesn't like it at all. He gets annoyed by her, I think, for several reasons. First of all, he didn't want a dose of truth from Satan to draw people into more of his lies. You see, this is how Satan works. He starts with a truth or a half-truth, and he lulls and he pulls you in. And suddenly, you're walking a pathway of deception that you never wanted Paul also, he didn't want unsaved people to think that he was associated with demon possession. And on top of that, he did not want free publicity from the deceiver of souls. And so he looked at this girl who was demon-possessed, and while he couldn't free her from her human owners, he could free her from her spiritual owner. And so in the name of Jesus Christ, he cast that demon out in Jesus' name, and suddenly she became free. Good news for her. But not so much for Paul. Take a look at what happens next, verse 19. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. 
say, wait a second, Phil, I thought you told us just a moment ago that they worshipped a variety of different gods back then, so what's the problem with adding one more to the mix? Right? What's, what's the problem? Well, again, they, there were a variety of different gods that were pre-approved by the state that you could worship. But Paul shows up and starts talking about Jesus. I mean, no one ever heard of him before, this new religion. And in the minds of the people back then, this was some kind of strange sect or cult. And so what happens next is this, verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. It would appear that Paul completely underestimated the results of his own actions here. He wasn't thinking ahead, clearly, because suddenly now he's being ostracized for his faith. Are you willing to be ostracized for yours? I think sometimes we as Christians, we, we think we should say something and then we don't, or we think we should do something, but we don't because we're afraid of what other people will think of us. Paul wasn't. In fact, Paul, he also wrote this. He says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution is just part of the whole deal is what he's saying. And so as a Christian, if you've experienced persecution at any level, I encourage you to join with Paul who viewed life much in the same way that Joseph did some 1,500 years before him, when Joseph was caught in a tough spot as well. And he wrote, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. This is how God works. And so how did the Holy Spirit work next? Well, he ensured transformation through a surprising worship encounter. A surprising worship encounter. Remember now, Paul and Silas are in prison. Think of it as a dungeon underneath. It's very dark. They're in chains down there. And even though they're in chains, in the worst possible spot you can imagine, here's what we learn. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Let me ask you, does your praise of God depend upon your circumstances? I mean, you praise God when things are great, right? When things are rolling like you want them to roll. But when things don't quite kind of work out that way, do you kind of stop praising Him? Do you stop praying? Kind of get bitter? I want to encourage you to, to not respond like that. Because when Christians respond in those ways, friends, we're missing out on some of the very best that God has for us. I want you to think about this now. Paul and Silas in prison, they're chained, they're in the dark. And in the midst of this, what is their response? They're not yelling at God. They're not angry with God. They are singing praises to God. And in the midst of their praising God, verse 26 says, Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. Let me ask you, what are you bound by? What weighs you down? What holds you down? Chains of pain? Chains of expectation placed on you by yourself or by others. Chains of hopelessness. Chains of sickness. Chains of fear in terms of what other people might think of you. I want you to be honest with yourself and say, you know, what weighs me down? What is chaining me down in my life from really operating in the fullest of joy that God would have for me? What are your chains? And then before I finish in just a few moments, I want us to stop and I want to give us all an opportunity to respond as Paul and Silas did. 
I want you to think about your chains, but in the midst of all that, whatever's weighing you down, I want to remind you that it's through your unashamed, passionate worship of God. And it's because of His incredible, amazing grace that your chains, whatever it is that's weighing you down, can be released. That's the power of praising God in the midst of our circumstance. And so will you stand with me right now? And I want you to respond not with a golf clap kind of a praise, but with a sing at the top of your lungs kind of praise. Because it is Jesus. It is because of Him, because of His death, because of His resurrection, because of the power of the Holy Spirit that our chains can be released. Our chains can be broken. And so let's sing and let's worship Him no matter what we're facing right now.